Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. Like you said, my name is Matt, and I am, uh, I'm so excited to be here with you guys today. Um, and uh, yeah, so like he said, I'm a student ministries pastor, and uh, there's really nothing more as a student ministries pastor that I, that I love than really kind of crowd participation. You know, as long as it doesn't come in, like I've said before, from a, a rowdy sixth grader in the front row, right? And so I'm going to give you guys a question, and weirdly enough, our question for today kind of sets Cody up. It is, what was an awkward moment you had recently, all right? <laughs> I know what mine was. Maybe that was yours too. But I want you to turn to Scus for about 30 seconds or so. It's going to set us up for where I want to go uh, this morning. What was an awkward moment you had recently? All right, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Turn to Scus, the people around you. You can give us a little bit of music. Ready, set, go. Bring it up, bring it up, bring it up. All right, raise your hand if you just had your awkward moment with me. Just me? All right, you can put your hand up. Um, all right, so anyone that knows me knows that uh, I just have a real passion for talking to people about what they believe, you know. And uh, I do this really at one of my, uh, my favorite places, a place called Pete's Coffee. It weirdly enough has become a hobby almost of mine, right? So I, I, one morning I was there at 6 o'clock in the morning, had my Bible. I got a big Bible, so people ask me about it, you know, and it's like an encyclopedia. So I have it open, right? And out of the side of my eye, 6... 6 a.m., I see a, a group of well-dressed men walk in, three of them. They're all wearing white kind of pressed collared shirts, and they have a little black plaque right over here, right? And, and I, I, from 20 feet away, I start to get really excited because I love talking to Mormons. You know, like it's like, I don't know, I feel like they don't mind bothering people about Jesus. Me either, you know? So it's like we're a match made in heaven, right? And so uh, I'm getting hyped, right? And I'm like, all right. So I pull up my notes on Mormonism, and I have PowerPoints too, Avi. And so I, 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 I'm reading through my notes, right? And the, the miracle happens. They, they, all three of them grab a seat right next to me in their coffees. And I was like, thank you, Lord, right? And so I'm, I'm just doing a little bit of more studying, kind of absorbing the material. And what you may not know is that Mormons do have a differing view of the deity of Christ, the person and nature of who Jesus Christ really is. And so I love talking to Mormon people. And so I, I kind of say, all right, God, use this moment, right? Use me. And I go, and, and then as the kind of the anticipation is growing, as I'm on like the 12th page of my PowerPoint, right? I'm like, finally, I'm like, a turnover, 6.05 in the morning. Good morning. And the guys all turn over. I'm like, good, good morning, guys. And they turn over. And it was at that moment that they turned over that I realized that the black plaques on their shirt didn't say elder as it would if they were Mormon. It said farmers and merchants. <laughs> so they turn over to me. And I realized these people aren't Mormon. They're bank tellers. I cannot begin to communicate to you guys how thrown off I was. <laughs> With this awkward stutter, I was like, so, so you guys work at the bank? And they're like, yeah, bro, like, what? Yeah, and I was like, 
interest rates, right? Like, this is wild. And they quit, just quickly, like, you know, looked away, just hoping to disappear, right? I don't know, maybe you've had a similar moment, right, where you're like, I don't know, at a, at a restaurant, right, and they bring your food over, and the waiter or waitress says, um, hey, enjoy your meal, and you're like, you too, and you're just like, <laughs> you know, it's like, whatever. It, it was that moment for me, right? Now, here's why I share that, that silly story for you. I'm willing to bet that we've all been in a, a similar situation when we were hoping to or having a faith-based conversation with somebody that we care about, a, a coworker, a friend, a family member, someone like that. So you may have confidence in the truth of the Bible and maybe even the power of the gospel as you have seen it evident in your life. But you may still struggle, right, to, to talk to your friends, your family members, your coworkers about your faith and about who Jesus is, maybe because of the big, you know, what ifs. I mean, what if I don't have all the answers to the questions that they have? Um, what if I make Scripture look out dumb? And what if I just make myself and all of Christendom just look dumb? And so maybe in situations like that, we can find ourselves maybe just a little bit ashamed. I mean, no, not of our faith and maybe not of the Bible, but at least our ability to defend it. Now, here's the good news, though. Truth does not depend upon your ability to defend it. Right? Amen, right? It, it does not. And by the way, God doesn't need you to defend him. He's a, he's a big boy. Right? He, can, he can do it, right? Now, here's the next good news. Is God has never asked, nor will he ever ask, that his followers have an exhaustive knowledge of all things. And so today, I just want to journey with you in one of my favorite stories that was really told by Jesus thousands of years ago that, for me, at least takes so many of the burdens that we place on ourselves, off ourselves, when it comes to having a real passion and authentic joy in sharing our faith. I think that we can shift a lot of the burdens to where they're supposed to be. Today, I just want to discover two things as we glean from Jesus, as we unpack the story we're going to be journeying through in a second. Number one, the character of God. Me personally, I learned so much about the character of God as we journey through the story we're going to be going through. Number two, the commissioning by God. So we have the character of God to the commissioning by God. Let's start with the first one, the character of God. As we think of that, it's important. It's important that you see God rightly so that you can see yourself, humanity, and the world correctly. I heard a story of a woman who went to the optometrist and brought a pair of... Uh, to buy a pair of prescription eyeglasses for her elderly husband. Three days later, she returned to return the pair of eyeglasses, and the doctor said, well, ma'am, what's, what's the problem? Did they, what's the problem? And she said, my husband still isn't seeing things my way. <laughs> you know, how we see God really is of utmost importance to how you relate to him. Let me say it this way. If you have a faulty vision of him, you will inevitably have a broken relationship with him. See, when you think about it, Jesus worked hard to correct our vision of what God was like, what his personality was like. I mean, every parable that he told, every lesson that he taught was, was designed to show us what the heart of God was like, what he was passionate about, what brought him joy, what brought him sorrow, what he was like and who he was. You know, over the years, one of the things that I've always found really most interesting about Jesus is that he didn't always really gravitate towards religious people. I mean, which is odd, right? Because he's a religious leader. So you would think that as a religious leader, he would spend a lot of time with religious people. And yeah, he did, but he also spent a lot of time with unreligious people. In fact, it seemed that the people who were most uncomfortable with the temple because maybe they felt judged, maybe they felt ostracized, maybe they had some run-ins with some, I don't know, hypocritical Christ or uh, Jewish people too. <laughs> maybe those are the exact same people that felt most comfortable around Jesus. But the flip of that is true. The people that felt most comfortable at the temple because it made them feel safe or in control or that they were good and good standings with God, those were the people that were most uncomfortable with Jesus. I mean, another way of saying this is the people that felt the most comfortable around Jesus were the unchurched. This is, this is wild because you would think that they wouldn't be in the same people category, right? They didn't maybe associate with the same people. They didn't use the same language. They didn't even have maybe the same hobbies. But you dig just a little bit deeper and we find that the people who were unchurched maybe felt comfortable around Jesus because they knew that Jesus authentically cared for them. Because there was no other man, a religious man in antiquity, that invested, pursued, cared, sacrificially loved people that were nothing like them. 
like Jesus did. See, they at first didn't have much in common with this Jewish rabbi that was named Jesus that lived 2,000 years ago, but because the way that this godly person loved, sacrificially cared for other human beings, they ended up following Jesus. Let's learn about this together as we open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one as you head out today. But you can grab your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 15 with me. If not, the verses will be up on the screens behind me. But let me have you guys turn there, give you some little bit of context of what's happening in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 really does give us some insight some of the stuff we're talking about. There are three things that are lost but then eventually get found. There's a sheep, there's a coin, and then there's a son. Today we're going to be looking at the first parable, though, because we don't really have time to go into all of them. But I would encourage you to read them a little bit later. Now, my friends here who are maybe new to this whole Jesus and church thing, you didn't grow up in church, welcome. I'm excited you're here. Let me quickly define what a parable is for you. I don't really want to use churchy words or Bible words not really defining them. So here's what a definition of a parable is. A parable is a fictitious story told by Jesus designed to teach a truth. Now, it could be a truth about heaven or hell, sin or salvation, or maybe we're going to find today the character of God himself. But maybe the easiest way for you to remember what a parable is, is a parable is an earthly story designed to communicate a spiritual truth. A parable is an earthly story told by Jesus spontaneously as he looked at who was in the audience, he would create an earthly story designed to communicate a spiritual or a heavenly truth. With that in the back of your minds, I want you to follow with me in the book of Luke chapter 15. Jesus says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. I want to pause really quick. We've got to remind ourselves this story is 2,000 years old, right? And so he is, Luke is inserting the cultural labels of the people that were in the audience at that time. Two people, number one, the tax collectors. Now, you've got to understand these were the bad guys, right? These guys were professional extortionists and thieves. In fact, story after story in the ancient world talks about these people being hated, absolutely despised, because they were really actually just ripping off their own people. The way that it worked is the foreign government, the Romans, came in and conquered them and took them over and imposed high taxes on the Jewish people and then turned around and hired the Jewish people, some of them, to extract that tax money from the other Jewish people. The way that it would work is a percentage would go to the Roman government and a percentage would go to the tax collector. Let's say you owed 10% of something, some amount of money to the Roman government. They would charge you 15 or, uh, or even 20% and, and keep the rest and pocket the rest. So these people were hated. The first group, they were the tax collectors. The second group was just the good old sinners. You know, the people who get drunk and watch porn and don't say thank you after you open a door for them. You know, just the good old regular, regular, you know, sinners, you know. Follow with me, verse 2 says this. But the Pharisees, now, the Pharisees were the religious people during Jesus' time, the top tier of the Jewish society and the teachers of the law muttered. This man, talking about Jesus, if you have your Bibles, highlight welcomes sinners and eats with them. There's a critique here. He communes with them. He is spending time with the sinners, the bad people, the people that you shouldn't like. See, the religious people of Jesus' time would say, Jesus, look, we, we don't get it. I mean, we know who you claim to be, right? You came as a religious leader, but you never, Jesus, you never invite us really over to the party. You're spending all your time with all these unreligious people as a religious leader. In fact, we heard, right, that there was this one time at a wedding that you turned, like, water into wine, and that seemed like that would be a popping party, but you never invited us over to the party, right? What, Jesus, what's, what's going on? Jesus. Jesus, why are you spending all of your time with people who are in church, the lost, the unclean, people who are just plain bad people? Maybe they don't look like you. Maybe they don't act like you. Maybe they don't even have anything in common with you. See, Jesus knew that the tax collectors, the sinners, and yeah, even the religious people of the time, had the wrong view of the way that God sees, God interacts, God treats human beings. See, they saw people as good people and bad people. They saw people as welcomed by God and those shunned by God. And maybe the people that were shunned by God was because they were like, I don't know, maybe they had a backstory, you know, and, and they sinned a lot. Their, their sin list was as long as like a CVS receipt, you know, like maybe, maybe they had a story, you know. And then maybe those were the people that were loved by God and that those were the people that were hated by God. And the problem, 
The problem was this became the primary way that people of the time began to categorize other human beings. And in no way, and in no way were these adjectives reflective of how God the Father was viewing, how God the Father was interacting, how God the Father was treating and seeing other human beings. See, Jesus decides that he's going to use this occasion as an opportunity to teach these people of how their Heavenly Father views, interacts, sees, maybe even pursues them. So all this really sets the scene for kind of Jesus' teaching. And like I said, he tells stories of lost things to help us see how God sees, how God loves, how God pursues people. Follow with me. It says this in the parable. Suppose one of you, verse 4, has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? You know, interestingly enough, as I came across this, there's probably enough context in the story just to use the word lost. You don't even really need the word sheep next to it. But weirdly enough, the concept, the Jewish motif of sheep, that's a theme in the Old Testament, is actually vital in us understanding the human condition. We'll pause there for a second, but I want to I remind you really quick, whenever we, we jump into these stories that we call parables that Jesus goes off on, there are two questions that you and I need to ask so that we can appropriately understand the story. Number one, who is God in the story? Number two, who am I? One, who is God? Two, who am I in the story? Bad news. We're the sheep. And when our maker compares this to something else that he's made, we should probably pay a little bit of attention, right? So let's talk about sheep for a moment. The first thing you need to know, this was not a compliment in fact, of all domesticated animals, sheep are the most pathetic. Let me tell you three things about sheep. Number one, they are dumb. They are literally known to walk off cliffs. I don't know how dumb of an... Right, so I have a corgi, right, a little five-year-old corgi. And um, every time I take her on a walk, uh, she tries to, like, bolt off to her death, right? She tries to, like, go right under a UPS truck or something like that, right? Like, she's pretty dumb, but she's not dumb enough to walk off a cliff. That's a special type of dumb, right? <laughs> Number two, they're directionless. I mean, they get lost daily, wandering into places that they shouldn't be, straying away, getting themselves into danger. When you think of like a, a pigeon, maybe even a dog, not my dog, but other dogs, they can find their way back home, right? They have some sense of geographical location, right? But not, not sheep. You can literally pick a sheep up, put it right here, and it's never going to make its way back over to where the shepherd and the rest of the flock is. It's just going to keep just walking away from safety and care and where it should be. They're dumb, they're directionless, and finally they're defenseless. When you think about it, right, there is no, they have no teeth, they have no uh, claws, they're not fast, they have no agility, and the compound, all that, they're kind of fat and they're, they're kind of slow, right? I mean, there's nothing impressive about a sheep. I mean, don't believe me, imagine this. Imagine tomorrow morning you're awoken by an alert on your phone that a herd of hungry sheep are roaming around your neighborhood. You, like me, would probably grab your phone, hopefully an iPhone, and you would grab that because Android suck, and you would, you would try and go and find the sheep, Right? And you try to see where they were and take a picture of it because it would be a cool Instagram photo potentially, right? Or maybe some of you still use MySpace, right? But whatever, you would take the photo and you would, you, you would want to do it because it would, they're kind of cute. They're kind of funny and fun and cuddly, right? And fluffy. Now imagine the same scenario. You get an alert in your phone and it says that a pack of hungry lions are now roaming your neighborhood. You, like me, would freak out and lock all your doors and windows. And I live on the third floor of an apartment and I would still freak out, right? And you for sure would not go and try to pet one and take a picture with it in case you had a death wish, Right? And that is because you understand that a lion is an impressive and dangerous animal. But a sheep, a sheep, they're the laughing stock of the animal kingdom. Because there's no other animal that's that dumb, that directionless, and that defenseless that it needs another human being 365 days of the year, 24-7, to care, lead, and protect it. Do you get what Jesus is trying to tell us about the human condition, about you and me apart from our shepherd? No, not yet? Okay, let's ask some more questions. Good question is, how did the sheep get lost in the story? 
Well, we aren't actually told in the book of Luke, but we are in the book of Matthew chapter 18 where this parable is also found. Follow with me. Matthew 18, 12 says this. If a man has a hundred sheep, one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go and search for the one that went, highlight, away? So the sheep is not lost because of the inattention of the shepherd, like the shepherd being a bad shepherd, just playing like Candy Crush on the phone, whatever. Like that's, not, that's not what's happening. The, the, the shepherd is a good shepherd. The sheep is lost, however, because he or she has wandered away. It was their fault that they have wandered. It is their fault that they are lost. Question. Did you know that sheep are one of the only animals in the animal kingdom that never look up? I mean, they never look up to see where they're headed, just at what is right in front of them, and that causes them to wander off. Do you know how much better their lives could be if they just looked up more often? Just like pick their heads up and we're like, okay, where's the shepherd? Right there, right there. How far have I drifted away? All right, okay, okay. Do you know how much safer their life, how much more abundant their life could be? Do you know how much better your life? Do you know how much better my life could be if we just looked up and towards God more often? When you think about this, this is such a perfect illustration for us. See, because in our natural state, apart from God, the Bible says that we are born lost and separated, never looking up towards God. In fact, the Bible uses even worse words. It uses like the word like we're dead. We are born alienated from God. Hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, the prophet of Isaiah said this. He says, we are like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. I want to ask you to go back into the garden with me for a second. What was the first question that God asked mankind? In the book of Genesis chapter 3 verse 9, says this, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Adam, where are you? I'm going to click pause for a second real quick. Okay, God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. He created the world like a little bit ago. And why would an all-knowing, ever-seeing, ever-present God ask this question? Have you ever played like hide-and-seek with a kid and they're like hiding right in front of you? They're like, where am I? You're like, you're right, you're right, you're right there. Like, you're like, this is kind of like the image that I get. Like he's hiding behind a bush and God's like, are you kidding me right now? Like you're... Why did an all-knowing God ask this question? Because he wanted Adam to know and he wanted Adam to answer the question. Because the real answer to this question is, I am now lost. I am disconnected, separated from my shepherd. When you think about this, this was the very first look-up moment in Scripture. See, one of the things that we're trying to do as we share our faith is we're trying to get people to just look up. Because if all you ever do is look down, life is going to get pretty dark, life is going to get pretty hopeless, and you're going to wander and you're going to get lost. Thousands of years ago, when Jesus first told this story, the audience would have been picturing a sheep that was looking down. And imagine the, the image with me. He's, he's running across a pasture, wandering away. And in the pasture, there would be maybe a little divot, a little hole, a little crevice that maybe he didn't see. And so the, the, the little sheep walks over, and he's got his little hooves. And maybe one of the hooves, the left or the right, falls into the hole. And he, he falls in and tumbles in onto his back. See, this is called a cast sheep. And when this happens, because sheep aren't the most agile and athletic animals, they almost always fall into their back or onto their back. And in between the little crevices of the hole, they, they're, they're, they end up being stuck there and they can't move and they can't get themselves out. Even worse, over time, gases begin to build up in the stomach of the little guy and they eventually cuts off the circulation to his, to his legs, to his extremities. See, the image that would have conjured up in antiquity would have been this little guy screaming out on his back because he's, he's terrified. He can do nothing regardless of his wiggling to get him out of the situation that he's in. He's fearful, he's full of anxiety, and he's plagued with worry. And the truth is he'll die there unless he's found by the shepherd. And the shepherd picks him up, carries him, until the blood gets back into his legs, and he can put him back down, he can carry under his own weight, and follow him again. Man, maybe you're here today, 
and you just find yourself in a similar situation. You feel like, man, you've gotten yourself into a, in a, a relational, an emotional, a spiritual, financial problem that you just, you just can't get yourself out of. No matter what you do, no matter how far you wiggle, it, you, you can't get yourself out of the, the hole you fell in. And my encouragement to you is to just look up and towards God because he is a God that rescues. He is a God that saves. We find this in verse 5. Follow with me. And when he, the shepherd, finds it, he what? He joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Man, do you remember what this moment was like for you? I remember what this moment was like for me. It was December 31st, 2010. I was a senior at Cypress High School. I turned 18 four days before that, and it was a few, maybe two, three o'clock in the morning. I'm throwing up in a bush because I have alcohol poisoning. And it was in this moment that I'm throwing up, and I'm just feeling like God is knocking on the door to my heart and saying, all right, do you want the life I want for you? Do you want a life of more? Do you want to continue on the trajectory that you're going to be on? It was in that moment he showed me two, two, two different trajectories, who I could be and who I was going to be if I didn't allow him to pick me up. I remember that, 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 that I'm so thankful that God reached down from heaven and redirected me, pulled me out of the hole that I was in. Because a few years later, I found out where that trajectory would leave, and it I lost my dad because of it, and I'll share that in a second. That trajectory should have been very similar to the one that my dad lived. See, this moment in this story symbolizes salvation, where God reached down and God changed the situation. God did all the work. So the shepherd, he takes it upon himself to walk for miles, to comb the hills, to look everywhere just hoping to find the lost sheep and bring his little guy, his little girl home. I want you to remember with me, Jesus said what? This is an illustrative story of how God works. And if it hasn't been made obvious yet, if we're the sheep... He's a shepherd. So imagine with me, after days of walking and yelling the sheep's name in the atmosphere, only for the name to fall down on the cold desert floor, the shepherd finally finds his sheep. I want you to notice with me that as soon as he finds the sheep, the lost sheep, he picks up the sheep, and he, doesn't, he isn't angry, he isn't upset, he isn't disappointed, he doesn't say, how dare you? But rather, he picks up the sheep, puts the heavy sheep on his shoulders, hikes the miles that is required back to safety and back to bring him home. I want us and I need us to see that our relationship with Jesus Christ and our salvation is exactly like that. Jesus literally carrying the weight of our sin all to bring us back home. No, 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 not to pay us back, but to bring us back because he loves us. See, if you're like me, maybe, maybe there are times that you've just felt like just lost in the crowd, you know. You've asked God, like, God, do you, do you really care about me? Or am I just maybe a number amongst the many? What this story shows us and what I hope you understand is the value that you have to God the Father. That he is restless in his pursuit until you come home. So what do we learn about the, the person, the nature? What do we learn about God from this parable? Well, that's another sermon, but let me just give you a few insights. Number one, he's personal. Number two, he is attentive. Number three, he notices. And finally, four, he pursues because he loves. This last week I was um, on vacation. And uh, I was driving up north, and instead of listening to music, I decided to listen to some podcasts. And uh, on the podcast, I was listening to a Jewish commentator talk to a Christian about who Jesus was. And the Jewish commentator, the Jewish guy, he said, look, Jesus brought no new revelation from God. Is he even needed? And the, the Christian gave an answer that I'll be honest with you, I wasn't super hyped on. But he said that, well, Jesus took some themes in the Old Testament and brought them into the New Testament for us to kind of better understand certain themes in the Old Testament. And I didn't really like that answer, although that is absolutely true. What I wish that the Christian took the Jewish guy to was this story right here, because the idea of a God who is mighty, majestic, and powerful, perfect, awesome, and great, the idea of a God who searches after sinners is a revolutionary concept. 
No other faith, no other worldview, no other system of thinking has a God that's morally perfect and just and holy that longs and yearns for sinners, that a great God loves sinners greatly. How did Paul say this? He said this in Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the book of Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said, I came for what? He said, to seek and save the lost. Follow with me in verse 6. We're going to see this. And he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Question. If this story communicates the heart of God and we are supposed to be like him, does your life emulate that you care about the lost like he cares about the lost? Because here is what I can promise you. People who never read the Gospels will read your life. And so what are they learning about the character of God as they examine and look at your life? The first theme of this morning is the character of God. I learned a lot about the character of God through this. Number two, the commissioning by God. Start with the question, when was the last time? When was the last time you or I or we demonstrated that we care about what God cares about? You know, as churches age and even as Christians age, we typically become more focused on our comfort than our calling. And we, Seacoast, need not to be a group of people that are more comfortable and and focused on comfort, but we need to stay focused on our calling because the calling of the church is the people that don't know Jesus Christ. Because the truth is, and I've said this before, the church is the only organization on planet Earth that does not exist for its members. And that's because every member of God's family is a minister because you have a ministry because you have a sphere of influence. So you ask a great question. How do we accomplish this monumental task? And the answer is one person at a time. Because the truth is, we may not be able to reach everyone, but each one of us can reach someone. You know, over the last handful of weeks, we've been learning about Nehemiah. You know, can you imagine how different Nehemiah's story would have been if he didn't seek God before seizing his opportunity? Imagine Nehemiah waltz into the palace one day and says, hey, king, I need $3 billion, three years off work, X, Y, or Z, an army, yada, 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 yada most likely probably would have never, ever heard of the story of Nehemiah. He would have been killed, beheaded in probably that moment. But because he was a man of discernment, he was a godly man, he took the time to seek God, and God sowed an opportunity for him at the right time. What does this mean? What's the point? We must talk to God about people before we talk to people about God. We must talk to God about people before we talk to people about God to ask God to soften their heart. See, when Scripture talks of the lost, the people that are apart, separate, outside of God's family, It uses words like deaf, it uses words like blind, it even uses words like dead. And I guess when you think about it, if you're dead, you're both blind and deaf, but you get the concept. But until we understand that people are spiritually dead and that God has to move in their hearts, we're going to burden ourselves with an action because we know it's an impossible task. You're going to think you need to have all of the answers to life's largest questions. You're going to think you need to have such an ability to articulate the, uh, the gospel in such a harmonious and magnetic way. And you're going to burden yourself in an action. How does Paul say this? He says, you were dead in your sin and trespasses and the ways in which you used to walk. I mean, do we understand what the word dead means? A famous pastor in a book entitled Multiply, and in Francis Chan, gives this illustration. He says, imagine I told you to go to the cemetery this week and your job was to get just one dead person. Just one dead person and give them life. Just one, right? I mean, just one. What would you do? I mean, maybe more importantly, who would, you, who would you invite? Who would you bring with you? I mean, you would bring a philosopher, has life's, all of life's largest questions, a doctor. I don't know, would you bring Cody or Doyle to maybe give a great sermon? Maybe Doyle, right? Um, just kidding. 
I don't know, would you bring Amy or Nick to just sing your favorite worship song? No, of course not. Right? You would get on your hands and you'd get on your knees and you would ask God to do something only God can do. Make dead things live again. Bring life to the decaying. The point is, you and I, we cannot do this without Christ. Saving people from hell is nothing short of a miracle. And last time I checked, you and I, we're not miracle workers. He is. So the point is, invite your God into your one. The one person that you're going to reach out to. And persistently pray that God does what only God can do. You know, I've learned that something amazing happens. You start to pray for people. The very people that you're praying for, you start to love ever more. And God does something beautiful. God does something awesome. He uses your relationship in your heart as a bridge to walk from your heart into their heart. As we end today, I guess there's just two things I want to tell you. Number one, if today if you sit in this room and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you to invite someone to our Christmas Eve services who doesn't. As long as hell is a reality, we must care for lost people. Every day, here's the challenge, here's the encouragement. We want, to get, we want to encourage you to get on your hands and knees by your bed when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed. Just ask God for this one person that they would change their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Here's what we're asking you to do. We are asking you to reach up before you reach out. Reach up towards God and say, God, I want you to do something in this person's life. Then you seize the opportunity. Then you, then you go out and you say, God, I'm, I'm going to use this opportunity. Seven years ago, um, this weekend, Doyle gave a sermon uh, that was similar in the sense that it was encouraging us to invite people to Christmas Eve service. So I took it to heart and I said, all right, I'm going to pray for my dad. I want my dad. My dad's a non-believer. He's an atheist and I want him to come to know Christ. So I, 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 I prayed, I prayed, I prayed, I even, I, and then I, I seized my moment. I said, Dad, I, I want you to come to Christmas Eve service with me. He's like, I don't, I don't know. I was like, Dad, I'll mow the lawn, I'll wash a car, I'll be nice to my sister, I'll clean up the dog poo. I mean, could you just come to service with me? I just, I just really want you. Finally he said, yeah, I'll come to service with you. It was the first church service my dad's been to like in 50 years or something. So we sat right over here. And um, on the stage there was this big drama, that Christmas Eve service, a big stage. And in the center of the stage there was this big wood red door. And there was this drama of actually Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son, though, and there was this traveling musician. If you were here, you may remember it. And he, you could tell there was some tension between him and the, the family that was inside at the dinner table. There was a father, a mother, and some, some children that were sitting here just enjoying each other's presence, being a part of the family. And then there was the son that you could see from far looking in from the window just saying, are they going to let me back in? Like, I, I've been running. So that the son finally builds up the courage to walk up and... He's about to knock on the door, and he decides, I, but then he builds up the courage again. He walks over the door, knocks on the door. The door opens. The father gets, opens the door. And there's this moment where the father is looking into the son's eyes, and you can see the shame, the guilt in the son. The father does something. He, he goes through the doorframe, hugs his son, and drags him through. Brings him in by his hand, sits him at the table, and says, son, you're home. I don't need to know about your past. I'm not even asked about your past. I'm just excited that you decided to knock on the door to allow me to pull you in. Little did I know, two weeks later, my dad would pass away. And I was so thankful that I had the courage to invite my dad to come sit in the seats that you're in. Because I felt that that was such a beautiful display of the gospel. The truth is, heaven is not our natural default. We've talked about this before. Something needs to change. Do you care about what God cares about? God cares about lost people because he knows what awaits them. He wants to pay their debt. He wants to save them. That's what the Bible says, that he came to seek and save the lost. So who's the one person? Who's the one person you're going to start persistently praying for? And then you're going to seize your opportunity. We're asking you to seek God before you seize your opportunity. I guess the next person, the last person I guess I want to talk to, 
It's the person here today that is far from God. Man, you've been running. I don't know what it looks like in your life. I know what it looked like in my life. But you've been running. I want you to know that he's right there. He's got to turn around. He's ready to pick you back up. He, he, he is, he, you don't have to clean yourself up. That's the beauty of the gospel. You can come as you are. God doesn't expect you to clean your shirt and a plethora of other things. He, you come as you are. Because Jesus is willing to forgive you. Jesus is willing to change you. Jesus is willing to bring you back. And Jesus is willing to carry all of your burdens. See, it doesn't matter what you've done. It even doesn't matter how far you've strayed. It doesn't even matter how far you've been running. All that matters is that he wants you back. And if you're here this morning and that's you, there's going to be people from down front who invite you to come on up later to tell you what that journey looks like. Let's pray. Father, today, as I reflect back on my life, I remember, God, that I was lost and that you reached down from heaven and saved me. God, I am so thankful that you are a God that rescues. I am so thankful that you are a God that saves. God, I just, I pray for the people in this room that we would be more focused on our calling, God, than our comfort. And so we pray a simple prayer, Lord God, that you would break our hearts, God, for what breaks yours. Father, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. Guys, I want to thank you guys so much for being here this weekend. Be here next week. Cody and Doyle have an awesome Christmas uh, series they're going to be hopping into. Love you guys. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time. 